And now for a quick break for a word from one of our sponsors. Thanks. Hey, thanks for joining me on the Troncast with Tron Jordheim. Today I want to talk about uh, an article I put together some time ago, the nine-step method for deciding when or if to fix a business problem. Because, of course, every day of my life working on businesses, you run into problems. I run into problems. We all do. Really, being in business is... Uh, a little bit about having a split personality. Part of the time you're developing opportunities, part of the time you're fixing problems. And um, how do you know which to do on any day or which problem to tackle, which opportunity to work on? That is the key to getting things done. I don't want to really talk about opportunities right now. I want to focus on fixing problems because uh, as someone who does consulting for folks sometimes, uh, that is often where you end up coming in is a company has a problem and either they're stumped or they don't have the bandwidth and they say, hey, you come in, you help us with it. So if you sat down and started jotting out on a piece of paper with a pencil all of the business problems that you worry about or that your team or your staff brings to your attention, you'd have a pretty long list probably because there's always problems. So how do you decide which ones to deal with? So number one, do you have bigger fish to fry, right? Do you have more urgent problems? Do you have a fix that could create uh, more smoothness, uh, take away more friction? Uh, do you have a bigger payback on a different fix? Uh, is this issue a big fish or a little fish? So. That's one thing to think about. Do you have better things to do, better ways to use your resources, bigger fish to fry? And then you have to check yourself and say, is that really true or do I just want to avoid this problem? Because avoiding problems is also a good way to not work on them, but uh, not all problems should be avoided. So number two, is revenue growing nicely in spite of the problem? So maybe you have a problem, but it's really not hurting revenue. Maybe the problem isn't about money. Maybe it doesn't cost you money. Maybe it uh, doesn't impact profit. Uh, can you justify the investment then to fix the problem? Will fixing that problem help smooth out other parts of the operation that will help with profits? So maybe you look at the problem and say, you know what? It's not costing us money. Maybe it's not hurting us. Maybe we should wait. And then again, check yourself. Uh, is that a sound decision or am I just avoiding a problem? Uh, number three, how much increased revenue and profit could a fix bring? Uh, if you could gain a 10% increase in revenue and a 7% increase in profit on a large project, uh, that's pretty good use of your time to go ahead and fix that problem, right? So what, what is the drag on revenue of a current problem? And if you fix that problem, what's it going to do to revenue and profit? So if it increases uh, revenue by 10% and decreases profit, well, maybe you need to think about 
what sort of a fix you have in mind there. Maybe you have something backwards. Uh, but maybe freeing up the drag on revenue would be very valuable. So take a look at that issue and say, what, what can I really do to my bottom line and my top line if we fix this problem? Now, of course, you can't just look at that problem in a vacuum or the increased revenue and profit from that fix in a vacuum because everything affects everything. And, uh, you know, all the things that happen in our businesses happen in a web. And if you do something to that particular issue, uh, will it help or hinder other things, right? So you have to look one or two or three ripples past what you're trying to fix when you think you know what sort of increase in revenue you're going to get from a fix. And then again, check yourself. Is this really realistic or am I just chasing a shiny object because I think I can really boost revenue by fixing this problem? So check that out with yourself. Number four, uh, is the current state of affairs harmless or is it corrosive? Uh, you may just have an inefficient or sloppy process somewhere in your chain of processes that really doesn't hurt much. Uh, it doesn't uh, decay teamwork. It doesn't hurt revenue. It's really not causing any kind of employee turnover. It's not bleeding costs. It may just be a frustrating thing. You may have had to adopt some workaround and the workaround really isn't hurting anything, but it's a little bit annoying. That's fine. You can live with that. Now, is the current state of affairs corrosive? Does this current workaround or inefficiency really hurt morale? Uh, is it causing some bleeding costs? Uh, is, is it making a situation where your people have to work twice as hard or repeat processes and uh, is it causing bitterness among groups against other groups? I mean, sometimes a little problem can be really corrosive. And if you look at that little problem in a vacuum and say, well, that's just a silly little problem. We don't have to worry about that. You may be totally wrong because if that little problem is corrosive to the psyche and the morale going, out, going around in your operation, you need to do something about that. So to check yourself here, you have to look at that and say, well, is this just a pet peeve of mine? Is the only corrosive thing happening to my pride when I look at this? Or is this actually corrosive to my team and my project? Then you'll know what to do. Um, number five, how much of a linchpin is this project in relation to other things? Right. I was talking a little bit before about how everything you do ripples out to everything else you do and how everything impacts everything else. And, you know, it is a little bit like playing Jenga where you grab one thing and think it's uh, in isolation and the whole tower comes down. So is this problem a linchpin? If it is, then you have to really think through how you're going to handle it, because uh, if you are coming in with an inelegant solution to a problem, you may cause lots more problems. So be careful how you treat those linchpin issues. Uh, 
sometimes your whole business ecosystem is far more dependent on this particular part of your business than you might think. And you're going to have to really put some thought and effort into figuring out how to fix this problem because you can't fix it in isolation if it's a linchpin. And you can't just yank it out either if it's a linchpin. So you've, you've got to really think about that carefully. So you know the old saying about uh, measuring twice and cutting once. Um, my experience when I used to be a, a hobby woodworker was it was better to measure like six times before I cut. So measure, measure, measure. Uh, number six, will a fix here help or hurt related links? Again, this goes back to what we were talking about with the linchpin, right? Everything's a link in the chain. So sometimes you fix one business problem and it creates all kinds of other problems because you didn't carefully think through how all of these different things relate to each other. So uh, this is why, uh, you know, chess players are often very good at making decisions because they can think many, many, many steps ahead of themselves. Although the rules of chess are far more static and perhaps logical than the rules of business where sometimes one thing leads to another that you did not know it was leading to. So think pretty carefully about what related links are going to be affected and how they're going to be affected. Um, you don't want to throw the whole organization under the bus to fix one little problem, right? You've all heard the... Uh, expression probably, you know, shooting cannons at ant holes or ant hills, right? You, you don't want to be doing that either. So uh, think that through how everything relates to the next link before it, behind it, around it, and so on. Uh, number seven, do you actually have the bandwidth to do the fix and keep the fix fixed? Right? Because sometimes when you're fixing a business problem, you don't just go in and turn a screw or switch a, uh, a switch to the right or the left. Uh, it takes fixing. And many times the fix will not stay fixed unless you continue to work on it. Especially if it's a process thing where people have to adhere 100% to the new process. Or if it's a behavioral thing where people have to comply 100% to the new behavior that you're putting into place. Uh, if you are going into the fix without being prepared to continue to maintain that fix and then continue to examine the results of that fix and be prepared to fix any little things or big things even that you break when you make that fix, then you're just causing a dust up. And uh, you can go in and do the initial fix, but then everything's going to fall apart behind it. Uh, and you'll cause yourself a bigger problem in the future if you don't plan for the bandwidth to maintain the fix. Uh, I see this happen a lot. People go in and say, okay, well, let's fix this problem. And they work on it for a week and go, okay, it's fixed. And three weeks later, it's right back to what it used to be because they did not have a maintenance plan in place and they didn't plan out the time and effort and resources it would take to keep that fix fixed, okay? So, number eight, do you know all of the caveats, asterisks, if I could say the word, and biases involved in the whole issue? Because every time you move into any kind of a fix, you have a whole long list of caveats, right? 
where if we do this, you know what it's going to be. If we do this, you know what it's going to cause. If we do this, you have to be prepared for that, right? So let the fixer beware. Uh, also, everything comes with an asterisk, right? Uh, you can look at any piece of data, and depending on how that data was put together and, and assembled and so on, you have to have a whole long list of asterisks. So, yes, I know the data says this, but that's what it means, and that's what it could mean, and that's what it might mean, and right? So you've, you've got to be prepared going into all these things, especially if you're not the one collecting the information. You have to go in and say, okay, so where's the information flawed? Where is, where is the information influenced by bias? Right? If, you, if you're trying to fix a problem, and this problem exists in a piece of the ecosystem that's near and dear to many people, they're going to be biased against your fix. They may try to sabotage your fix. Uh, if you're looking from the outside at a particular fix, your biases about that fix may be completely wrong. They may not apply to that fix because you don't like the color of it or the smell of it or whatever doesn't mean that it's causing the problem you think it means. So you have to really be careful about your own opinions, your own biases, opinions and biases of the team and so on. Uh, and then you have to know all the fine print down at the bottom of the page for the footnotes and the asterisks and so on. Uh, and if you don't take the time to do that when you're thinking about a fix or when you're double-checking yourselves as you're fixing a fix, uh, you could blow the whole thing up and you don't want to do that. And then number nine, most important probably, is do you have the right people and the right process for making the fix and seeing it through. If you don't have the right people in place, uh, and by right people, I mean the people with the skills, the know-how, the connections, the experience to make the fix happen, and if they don't have the right process and the right tools to be able to make it happen, then your fix isn't gonna work. And this happens a lot in many businesses where someone comes in and says, hey, I'm going to fix this, and they go in and they mess with it for a while, and really they never fix anything, they just make a mess. So think very carefully about who's going to be on a team, and this is often where consultants come in, because uh, if you have someone who has worked on this particular kind of fix many times before in different situations with different teams, they're going to have perspective that's going to be super valuable, to make sure this gets done right. And they're also gonna understand the process and the tools involved so that if a tool isn't working right, they can say, oh, the reason we're having a problem with the fix is this tool isn't working right. Or the reason we're having a problem getting this fix done is piece of this process isn't right. We have to fix that or whatever. So you've gotta make sure that you're doing plenty of planning and preparation and goal setting and brainstorming and take your time to make sure you're doing this thing right. You know, again, it comes down to the how many times should you measure before you cut a piece of wood or cut a piece of fabric. You should measure a lot and keep measuring from different angles with different rulers, have different people do the measurement. Make sure you're doing it right because otherwise, once you make that cut, it's too late. The cut is done. 
So the, the sort of overarching cautionary tone of this is because if, if building a business is about not only developing opportunities but also fixing problems, you have to have a business that's good at fixing problems. And if the internal reputation you have, your business has, with employees, partners, customers, and so on, is that you're really good at fixing problems, that is great. That builds a great business when everyone involved in the business says to themselves and to other people, hey, who cares if we have a problem? We're good at fixing problems. We're good at finding problems. We're good at deciding which problems to work on and which problems to forget about and how to prioritize our problems and get the right people in place and understand the ripple effect and all that. If that's how people feel about your business problems, you can have a great business because they will go in uh, unafraid and unflustered when problems come up because problems always come up. Stuff always breaks. Pieces of process that worked great last year don't work this year because the conditions are different and so on and so forth. Now, on the other hand, if your reputation is that you're not good at fixing problems or identifying problems or following through on problem fixes, then you're going to have a hard time maintaining a good business. Then the only way you're going to have a good business is if you're in such a profitable business that you can do it sloppy and stupidly and ridiculously and still get away with it and make money. Um, so there you go. These are the nine steps that uh, I like to go through before I decide whether I really want to approach a business problem and try to fix it. So one, do you have bigger fish to fry? Two, is revenue growing in spite of the problem? Three, how much increased revenue and profit could you really bring with this fix? Four, is the current state of affairs harmless or corrosive? Five, how much of a linchpin is this project in relation to everything else? Uh, six, will a fix here help or hurt related links in the chain? Seven, do you have the bandwidth to fix the problem and keep the problem fixed? Uh, eight, do you know all the caveats, asterisks, and biases involved so that you can recognize what you're doing there? And nine, do you have the right people and the right process in place? So if you can go through those nine things, you're going to know, do I fix this problem and how do I fix it? Or do I leave it alone and wait for another time? Put it on the list. Maybe it'll come up next time. Anyway, thanks for letting me rail on about things I find fun, like fixing business problems. And uh, I certainly appreciate you taking your time out of your day to listen to the Troncast today. And uh, feel free to hit the support this podcast button and um, toss in a dollar or two to keep me fueled so I can fuss at you about some more things. So appreciate your time. See you later. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm going to go ahead and take a break for a commercial message here. And hopefully you don't mind listening to that and help me pay the bills. 
and then after that we'll come back and walk a little more and have a little more quiet so I hope a little bit of quiet is doing you good thanks for listening
what do you do for sales training when sales training is so frustrating and seems so counterproductive sometimes, right? Because the people getting trained are sometimes resistant or sometimes they've been through so many training courses where they just tune out everything you say and you sound like the teacher in Charlie Brown. Sometimes the people doing the training are so frustrated because they come up with some really good material and go out in the field and prove some really good phraseology and techniques and approaches and then when they try to train it, sometimes it doesn't work in reality the way it it worked for them or it doesn't work for the particular people doing it or the folks who get the training just don't feel like putting in the time to perfect it it's really frustrating for the trainers. It's also really frustrating for the higher-ups, for the big bosses, because they invest in training and they invest in training materials. And sometimes the numbers don't move, and so they wonder, well, why are we doing this? What's the point? So I've come up with a couple different approaches for sales training that maybe are helpful. One idea is to make it a self-driven process where the salesperson is on their own sales journey, their quest for sales proficiency, their quest to be their own sales hero. So if you want to check that out, go to solvingsales.com. That's all about my self-driven sales journeys program. And you can subscribe to that for, I think right now it's $5 a month. I'm making it super easy so people can get in there and start creating their own journey to sales mastery. SolvingSales.com. SolvingSales.com. Thank you.